If you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd love for you to turn with me to the book of Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4, we are, this is the third sermon in a series through the book of Ezra. And we have watched in the first sermon as God began the renewal process with his people. As God stirred a pagan king to send back the people of Israel to their homeland and to empower them to build the temple there and to restore the worship of Jehovah there in Jerusalem. We watched as God moved the hearts of the Israelites to go back to their homeland and to give so that they would be able to have the offerings and so they would be able to restore the temple. And the altar and all the things necessary to worship God according to his word. Then in chapter, that was chapters 1 and 2. And then in chapter 3 we saw as the people began to work. Because not only is God going to begin the renewal process. But he is going to enable us to work. And so last week we were thinking mainly about how we participate with God in his renewal of his own people. And so we learned a lot just thinking about them rebuilding the altar, reinstating the sacrifices, and beginning to lay the foundations of the temple of God. Now this morning, as you can see on the screen, the, the renewal meets a bump in the road. And it is going to continue, but it is confronted. So today we're going to be looking at the opposition in chapter number four. And all of this, remember, is a great prayer of mine, a desire of my heart, that you and I would be renewed in a spiritual way. That you and I as individual followers of Christ would be renewed and that our church would be renewed to biblical faithfulness to a pursuit of personal holiness for the glory of Christ and for the good of the nations. Someone might say, well, what, what, how does this speak to Father's Day in every way? Our country needs nothing more, nothing more significant than to have the dads be passionate Pursuers of God. His glory among the nations. That's what we need. So, let's start in verse 1. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel, the heads of the father's houses, and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esau Haddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build 
and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And then, beginning in chapter in, in, in verse 6 and following, we have two letters that are written, actually at a later date, that were inserted into this historical record so that we would understand the kinds of opposition that they went through. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are standing in awe of your word this morning. Knowing that all things that are recorded in your word are for our good and for your glory. That these are examples to us. That this is truly a revelation of yourself. How you work with nations and peoples and specifically your people, your covenant people. And so we pray this morning that you will come and aid our minds and our hearts, which are incapable of understanding and applying this story properly. And that's why we stop and pray. That's why we stop and ask you for help. That you will guide, that you will direct, that you will illuminate truth. That you will change us. Oh, church, pray that, that God, you would change us, that you would work a work in our hearts that only you can do. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Here's the outline. I have three questions that I want to ask and answer. Number one, what kind of opposition did they face? What kind of of opposition did the Israelites face as they are going back to renew uh, the temple? Number two, what was the result of this opposition? What was the result of this opposition that they faced? Number three, what do we make of opposition? That's where we're going. Number one, what kinds of opposition did they face in our story. Number one, the first kind of opposition that they faced was the opposition of the temptation to compromise. The temptation to compromise. So as the people of Israel have been instructed by God Almighty to go back to their homeland, rebuild the temple, renew the sacrifices, and worship God the way He has commanded them. God has also instructed the pagan king to allow this to happen, to let them go back, to supply them with the vessels necessary to bring this about. They go back to the land, and as we learned, remember last week, we saw even then the little seed of opposition that began to grow because these people came back. And they were the new people in town. They were the new people in the church. They were the new guy at work. They were the new child in the family. And things don't always go so smoothly when new people come around. And that's exactly what happened. 
They go back to their homeland, but they've been gone for 70 years. There have been other people living in Jerusalem. There have been other people worshiping on this same mountain and at this same Location, As we saw there in the opening verses, they come to them in verses 1 to 3. After they heard and they approached in verse 2, Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said, and here's their temptation to compromise, and you, you'll see it here in just a moment. Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esau Haddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So it's a temptation to compromise, and it's not easily seen in that particular text. Simply because on a surface level, it would seem as if these individuals were sincere in their desire to worship with the people of Israel. But I assure you today, by the authority of God's Word, that they are not pure in their motivation. But rather, they would tempt the people of Israel to compromise... In their pure worship of God. Now how do I know this you say? I'm glad you asked. Let's turn for just a moment. To the book of 2 Kings chapter 17. Just hold your place. And go back to 2 Kings for just a moment. This is absolutely necessary to understand this story. 2 Kings chapter 17. Now what happens in Chapter 17 of 2 Kings. This is when we find the historical record of the deportation of the people of Israel out of the city of Samaria. Okay? So this is when the people, 722 B.C., when the Assyrians came in and carried away the people of Samaria and the upper tribes known as Israel. Okay? It wasn't until later in 586... That the Babylonians came and took Jerusalem. And we, we studied all that, remember? Now, I made a mistake in a sermon. And I want to make sure that I clarify that today. I said that the, Assyri- the uh, Sumerians began at that time when the Babylonians took Jerusalem. That is not true. <laughs> My mistake was confusing the two. When the Samaritans came into being was in 722, when we're going to look at it right here, when the northern tribes were carried away captive. And what happened was the Assyrian army brought people from other towns and other nations and other cities to Jerusalem, and therefore they lived there until the people of Israel came back in our story in Ezra. So I hope hope that makes sense to you. So, what we're doing now is understanding that this question the locals were posing to the Israelites in Ezra chapter 4, let us build with you, is actually a temptation for them to compromise their pure devotion to the worship of God Jehovah. And this is going to tell us why. And I'm going to tell you and then we're going to read it in the text. The reason why is because this people was not pure in their hearts themselves to the God of Israel. Now let's see if that's what the Bible says. Second Kings chapter 17 and verse 6. You read this when you go home, you read the entire thing. But verse 6, 
says this. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. Okay. And carried the Israelites away to Assyria. And placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. Now. Let's jump down because of time to verse 18. Verse 18. Therefore, the Lord was, because all of those verses following that tells why this happened. They sinned against God, and this is why God brought the Assyrians in to carry them away as judgment. Verse 18 tells us that, therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Okay? Now, let's turn on over to verse 24. Because all those verses in between just tell us how Judah was not obedient either. But in verse 24, listen to this. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Zephyrvain, and placed them in the cities uh, in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. Okay? You following so far? It's exactly what I said. The people of Israel were taken out and new people were brought in. Now let's, let's read about them. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Because these people were mistaken in thinking that there were multiple gods and depending on where you live, there would be a different geographical God as it were. Therefore, he has sent lions among them and behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there, and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Now it sounds pretty good so far, doesn't it? So far, so far. But let's keep reading. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived, the men of Babylon made Sakoth Benoth, the men of Kuth made Nergal, the man of Hamath made Ashimah. And the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Zephyrites burned their children in the fire to Adrimelech and Animelech, the gods of Sepharvain. Now listen to verse 32. They also feared the Lord. And appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrifice for them in the shrines of the high places. Now you know the law of God. Can just anybody be appointed as a priest according to the law that God gave to Moses? No. No. 
Verse 33. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. Now let's jump down to the last verse, 41, and see what it says. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise and their children's children as fathers did so do, so they do to this day. So when the people of Israel come back into the land, they are not meeting people that have a pure heart for the Lord God of heaven. They do not have a pure heart. They do not have a single focus upon God. But they add God, Jehovah, in with all of the other gods that they bow to and worship according to the nations. And so the first kind of opposition that the children meet is a kind of compromise. And this is so relevant for our day. Because we live in a day where you find phrases like religious pluralism. You know what that means? Religious pluralism simply means that we live in a society that must embrace the diversity of religions around us. That there are multiple gods, multiple ways, multiple names for God, and we may not call into the same name, we may not worship the same way, but we must all respect and even go so far as to embrace this reality of American culture. And it is a temptation for many churches today to compromise the pure, unadulterated worship of God according to the Bible. And we must do as the children of Israel did and not fall victim to this opposition to the work of God. Because as you see back in Ezra 4, the people answered them, you have nothing to do with us in building the house to our God. And of course, this led them to create their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which we find the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 4, talking to the woman from where? Samaria. Hundreds of years later, Jesus talks to the woman, and what is the issue? You Jews say that we worship in Jerusalem. And we worship on this other mountain. And Jesus says, oh, no, no, you don't understand. (laughs) The true worshipers are going to worship God in spirit and in truth. And so he himself became, as we learned last week, our temple. So that's the first kind. Number two, the second kind of opposition is interference. Interference. Ezra chapter 4, verse 4. The people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So if they cannot join in with them, they seek to interfere in the renewal of the people of God and the rebuilding of the temple. I've put down three things in which three ways in which they do this. Number one, they used discouragement. Discouragement is a great enemy of the church. 
Because when people get discouraged, what's the first thing that they want to do? Quit. You ever been there? It's so easy to get there. I'm discouraged. Things aren't going the way I thought they would go. Maybe I should just quit. And so they use the tactic of discouragement. Number two, they interfered by using the tactic of fear. It says that they made them afraid. They were afraid, in verse 4, to build the temple, to rebuild this temple. My friend, fear is a huge stumbling block to the church today. We're afraid of what someone might say. (laughs) We're afraid of what someone might do. And it can cause you to compromise and can interfere with your spiritual renewal. It could be today that you are not in the place with God that you would like to be simply because you have stumbled over the stumbling block of fear and you have disobeyed God and therefore you are not growing the way that you would if you would simply and boldly obey. Number three, under this interference, they use this tactic of false counsel. It says there, In our text, they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. So they use this false counsel. Oh, man. They used false counsel to frustrate the church. Is that not happening today? We have all kinds of doctrines today that attempt to trip up the church in our progression and in our mission to do what Jesus has called us to do. I find it strikingly amazing how we can focus on so many other things out there and neglect the one thing that Jesus commanded us to do. To make disciples who make disciples of all nations. (laughs) And there are all sorts of ways that this false counsel gets at us. The philosophies of the world. Did you hear that? The philosophies of the world can frustrate your development and your ministry for Christ. Let me give you a couple of New Testament verses on this. Romans chapter 16. In Romans chapter 16, we find that the world does, in fact, infiltrate the church if we're not careful. It was happening in the first century, as Paul writes to the church at Rome in chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. Listen to this. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. So you see, it's the same situation that the Israelites were facing. These people were not truly worshiping God with a pure heart. And they were seeking to cause the children of Israel to compromise the pure devotion to the one true and living God. They were seeking to frustrate them and their work. He goes on to say in in Romans 16, 17 and 18, that they are actually serving their own appetites. And listen to this, by smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the hearts of the naive. Isn't that not what happened in our story when the people wrote back to Artaxerxes? 
Did you notice the flattery that they used? Oh, we would just not, we don't want to see anything happen to the king's hurt. Most noble so-and-so, we are your servants. Were they really concerned for the king? (laughs) Or was that a tactic of flattery that they were using to get their way? Paul also writes in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 4, he says this. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Plausible arguments. So that's the second way. The first one, compromise. The second one, interference. The third one, political strategy. Political strategy. Look in verses 6, back in our text to verse 24. That whole, all of those letters that were inserted there. And what is beginning to happen in verse 6. Let's read it again. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So now we have the people of the land using political tactics in order to stop the progress of the renewal of the people of God to build the temple of God in Jerusalem. Is that happening today? Is not our government even now working on laws to marginalize and suppress the Christian faith? Political strategy. This interference using this political means to marginalize and oppress the people of God. Did you know this morning that people will unite to destroy something they cannot control? If people cannot control the Christian faith, then they must seek to destroy it. And this is what we are facing even today. Even last week as we heard the tragedy of murders taking place even in a place of worship. And this happens every year. The tactics under this political strategy. Number one, they use the persuasion of the many. Persuasion of the many. You notice in their letter, beginning in verse 7, the first thing that he does is he piles up these names of these people. And what is he doing to the king? He's simply using the persuasion of the many. All of us think this. So we must be right. Because we're the majority, right? So the persuasion of the many. The second tactic is, as we've already mentioned, flattery. As he tells them, as he tells the king, we don't want anything to happen to you. We're concerned for you, king, and your revenue. And that's the third way. Nothing persuades more in the political realm than money. And that's exactly what they bring up. Nothing is going to move the king to our cause and to promote our desire here in Jerusalem like the use of the persuasion of money. So that's number three. That's the answer to question number one. What kinds of opposition? Compromise, the opposition of interference, and the opposition of political strategy. Number two. What was the result of the opposition? Well... Look in verse number four. 
Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribe counselors. So they, they stopped. So you can write down, temporarily stopped. Temporarily stopped. Look at verse 24. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, we don't know exactly how long this work stopped. But to give you some perspective, most scholars believe that it was about 15 years. (laughs) How many of you have ever had to wait 15 years for anything? We are an impatient group of people, are we not? I mean, let me just get one of y'all at the line at Walmart later on today. Let me just get you caught by that red light when you're already late for work and see how difficult it is to deal with patience. I want you to understand something this morning, church, and this is absolutely relevant. This is relevant to your life as a child of God, and this is relevant to our church. God permitted the stopping of his own plan. He sent them back. He had the king to empower the people to go back and to rebuild this temple and then he allowed opposition to come and stop it for 15 years that puts a total different perspective on your Christian life and on a church ministry question number three what do we make of opposition what do we make of opposition We're going to end, this text ends with the stopping of the renewal of the temple. I want you to feel that. Stopped. God, I thought we were supposed to be doing this. You gave us this mission. You told us to do this. Stopped for years. I want us to feel the weight of that. I want us to feel the weight of that. What do we make of that? Let me say this. The work of the temple was temporarily stopped. But God's purpose and God's plan never stopped. Never stopped. God's word cannot be stopped. God's purposes cannot be stopped. God's plan cannot be stopped. It is in times of opposition and heartache that we draw near to the feet of our Savior into the bosom of His embrace. It is at the times of opposition and persecution. It is at the times when we fail in the things that we are seeking to accomplish even for the glory of God that we are forever changed and made more into the image of Christ. It is through the dark nights of the soul that you and I will grow. To reflect our Savior all the more. My friends, God often brings our work and our progress to a halt. Often brings us through the fires of tragedy and suffering in order that He might show forth His glory all the more. Do I have any biblical reference for this? 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 8 and 9, Paul says this. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. 
For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. He wanted to die. You ever been there? Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Who gives life and takes it away, by the way? God. We felt that we had received the sentence of death. And here's the reason behind it. You don't always get this. But He gives us a reason why He is suffering. This is what He says. But that, what that? All of His suffering. All of that. But that was to make us rely on, not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Why did he suffer like that from the hand of God? So that he would not rely on himself, but God. And that's the same reason that you will go through trials, suffering, difficulties, challenges, opposition in your life. So you'll know that it's not you, but God. I wrote down, and and maybe this is the part where I can short cut a little bit but I, I I thought about the early church and how the early church was oppressed still is today but in the book of Acts you go back and do this study it's very easy I want you to go back and just see how often the the apostles and the early church were opposed how often they faced opposition difficulty I don't know how many I wrote down. Acts chapter 4, 1 to 3. I'm just going to, I'm not going to give you all the references. This is how I'm going to speed it up. If you want it, I'll give it to you after. Peter and John imprisoned. Ananias and Sapphire lie. The apostles are arrested. The apostles are beaten. Stephen is killed. Paul persecutes the church. Plot to kill Saul. Herod kills James, the brother of John. Paul and Barnabas are ran off from Antioch. Also, they are ran off from Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. They, Paul and Paul is imprisoned at Philippi. He's ran off again from Thessalonica and Berea. He's ran off again and opposed in the city of Corinth. There is a riot that takes place in the city of Ephesus. And finally, when we get to the end, Paul is imprisoned again in Jerusalem. And all I did was started in Acts chapter 1 and went to Acts... Chapter, how many is there? 24, 26. Just went all the way through there. And you, right down through there, opposed, 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 imprisoned. (laughs) People being killed. This is the church who thrives in the midst of suffering. Well, it wouldn't be a good sermon if I didn't end with a couple of quotes, would it? So let me give you a couple that I found, and these are so encouraging to me, and I hope they'll be encouraging to you. How many of you know uh, Richard Wormbrand? You ever heard of him? Raise your hand. Richard Wormbrand. He was a uh, minister during the uh, communist reign who was in prison. Oh, man, you got to read his story. Just read it. Richard Wormbrand, read it. This is what he said. (laughs) I love this. 
Now remember, we're asking the question, what do we make of opposition? And I'm trying to point us to the fact that opposition comes to us by the hand of God for our good and for His glory. This is what Richard said. It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted there the communist terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us. So everybody was happy. What do we make of opposition? Charles Spurgeon is what he says. I love this. Never did the church so much prosper and so truly thrive as when she was baptized in the blood. The ship of the church never sails so gloriously alone as when the bloody spray of her martyrs falls on her deck. We must suffer and we must die if we are ever to conquer this world for Christ. Is that the kind of preaching we hear today? You've got to give up your life. You may be the next one to die so that millions will come to faith in Christ. Let me give you one more. John Bunyan. You ever heard of John Bunyan? He wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read that, you need to read it. It's the most sold book other than the Bible in the world. John Bunyan, he wrote it when he was in prison. Listen to what he said. Do not even such things as are most bitter to the flesh tend to awaken Christians to faith and prayer. To a sight of the emptiness of this world and the fadingness of the best it yields. Doth not God by these things call our sins to remembrance and provoke us to amendment of life? How then can we be offended at the things by which we reap so much good? Therefore, if mine enemy hunger, let me feed him. If he, th- if he thirst, let me give him drink. Now, in order to do this, he's a preacher, so he's going to give us a three-point outline. Actually, four. Now, in order to do this, number one, we must see good in that in which other men can see none. Number two, we must, we must pass by those injuries that other men would revenge. Number three, we must show we have grace and that we are made to bear what other men are not acquainted with and number four many of our graces are kept alive by those very things that are the death of other men's souls people are killing themselves today for the very things that make us as followers of Christ thrive and the difference is Jesus Christ God is always faithful. 
And what he began in those people, he will continue, as we will see next week. And what he begins in you, he will continue. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open your word to this story. We thank you for this opportunity to look afresh at the reality of your covenant people in real life. Not through the rose-colored glasses of so much prosperity, gospel, so-called gospel we hear today. But to look at the real life of real people who are the covenant people of God. Who are the blood-bought redeemed. Who suffer greatly in this life. And yet, you are faithful still. And yet, your purposes and your plan and your word will never return void, but accomplishes the very thing for which it has been sent. And so let us leave this place today emboldened by the reality of these truths, that though we suffer in this life, we will reign with Christ. That though we are despised and rejected of the world, we are accepted in Christ. We are beloved in Christ. And that no matter what we are facing in this room today, we have an unfading and unfailing promise. You said you would never leave us. And you would never forsake us. So God, I plead with you even now, if there's one in this room today who doesn't know you in a free part of sin, that you would ever so gently call upon them to come forth and leave the fields of sin in order that they might repent and trust in the finished work of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name and amen.